Today we are in the third week of a series called Build a Life. Um, and we've been talking about what it means to build a life that, um, that honors Christ and finds impact in the world. And this morning, as we've been following the, the letter that Paul wrote to a church in Philippi, a group of people that he had known for over a decade when he wrote the letter, uh, we come to a part of it that, um, that honestly can radically change how we view the world. And in order to help us understand it, I, I thought I'd tell you a story. It's not my story. Uh, it's not a story I've created, but it is a story I've heard. And many of you have heard it too. Because the story comes out of the subcontinent of, Af of India, and it's over 4,000 years old. It's actually been told in multiple religious settings and multiple stylistic devices. In fact, in the 19th century, a, a man here in the United States actually wrote a poem about this ancient parable. It's the parable of a group of men who were born blind. And they, they were approached by a friend who wanted them to have the experience in India of knowing what an elephant looked like. Maybe you've heard the story. The man came to them and said, gentlemen, in India, elephants are so much a part of our culture that it would be horrible for you not to be able to actually experience them. And so I know you can't see an elephant, so what I want to do is I want to take you to an elephant and I want to let you experience that elephant as only you can. The elephant is, is domesticated. The, the, the elephant is not wild. It's not dangerous. But what I want to let you do is I'm going to let you touch the elephant and then you will know what an elephant looks like because you have touched the elephant. And so he takes this group of blind men and and they go to the place where, where there's a tame, domesticated elephant for them to touch. I, I don't know if you've ever watched somebody who gets to touch an animal for the first time, but I have granddaughters. And uh, recently, I had the opportunity to, to take them to a, a small petting zoo and watch my one-year-old granddaughter when she saw a rabbit. And, and she doesn't talk much yet. I mean, she can say a couple of words, you know, dada, mama, that kind of stuff. But she, she, she makes these noises. If you ask her to kiss you, she will do that. I'll just let you know. We're kind of kind of watch her. When she gets 16, we're not sure that's going to be a good habit for her to have. Just anybody that asks her to kiss you, you know, just go right ahead. You know? but, uh, but she saw the rabbit, and she took, and she, she put her little finger on it, and then, then it saw it was okay, and then she put her hand on it, and then she looked up at me and made a couple of guttural, pleasurable sounds, and then her three-year-old older sister came and explained everything to her, all right, because that's what three-year-olds do. They explain everything to everybody, right? And so I'm looking forward to the opportunity that I'm going to take, whether my children allow it or not. Those girls are going to the zoo with me. Now, I'm not going to let them touch the elephants or the tigers or anything dangerous, but, but I'm going to take them to the zoo just so I can have that experience. But these men would never have the experience of seeing unless they could touch. And so their friend took them to this domesticated elephant. Maybe you know the story. The first blind man, when he went to to touch the elephant. He was at the front of the elephant. And 
And what he grabbed hold of was the elephant's trunk. And of course, the elephant was moving it around and it was squirming. And the blind man, the blind man took hold of the trunk and he, and, he, and he felt the size of it and he felt its shape. And he said, oh, an elephant? An elephant is like a giant snake. And the second man, when he came up, he, he grabbed the tusk of the elephant. He felt the smoothness of the ivory. He felt the point of the tusk. And he said, oh, no, 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 it, it's not like a giant snake, friend. No, no, an, an elephant is like a spear. The third man approached. He, he, he actually, when he got to the elephant, he, he grabbed the front leg of the elephant. And he said, you're both wrong. An elephant is not a snake. An elephant is not a spear. An elephant is a tree. An elephant is like a tree. It's just massive, round, stable. And the fourth man, the fourth man came up and, and he said, I, I want to see what the elephant looks like. And so he takes his hands and he put, and he hit the side of the elephant. And he said, you are all three wrong. The elephant is not a snake. The elephant is not a spear. The elephant is not a, not a tree. No, an elephant is a wall. <laughs> it's just a wall, solid, firm. You can't get over it, can't get around it. <laughs> and and then, then the next man came up. And by the, when he got there, just by the nature of the, the group of men going one by one by one, he grabbed the elephant's tail. <laughs> and he felt the elephant's tail and he said, no, no, you are all wrong. An elephant is not a snake. An elephant is not a spear. An elephant is not a tree. An elephant is not a wall. An elephant is a rope. And the, the men began to argue with each other. And the point of the parable, no matter where you read it, is that if you only experience a part of truth, you don't know all the truth. And the point of the parable as it's used, whether it's used in the academic setting or whether it's used in a cultural setting, is to say to all of us that we only see partial truth. And, and that when we only see partial truth, we need to give room for those who have a different perspective. As Paul was writing to the church in Philippi. He wanted to share a part of truth with them that they had not grasped. A part of truth that he was grasping as he was being imprisoned and was chained to a guard on each side 24, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days in a year for two years. He wanted to experience, he wanted them to experience, try to communicate with them, give them a perspective, if you would, of what it meant to follow Christ when other people opposed you for following Christ. He wanted them to have an opportunity to understand what it meant to really see the whole picture. And so as he's writing to them about his joy in their relationship, about the fact that what was an, looked like an obstacle to many people is actually for him an opportunity to share the gospel. He, he writes some pretty powerful words that can give us a perspective that is larger than simply the one we have from our own experience. Listen, as I read for you from Philippians chapter one, I'm gonna start reading the last few words of verse 18 into the fullness of verse 19 and following. Paul, writing to people he loved and knew, says, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. 
As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that, that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause so glory to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that, that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Christ, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had, and now hear that I still have. Paul's writing to these people that he loves, sharing his gratitude for the way they have supported him in his imprisonment with both their offerings and their prayers. And, and now as he's writing to them, he's, he's basically saying, listen, I need you to widen your perspective because I know that there are some of you who accepted Christ and you, you thought that if you accept Jesus, all your problems are going away. If you accept Jesus, you're never gonna have any trials or tribulations. If you accept Jesus, everything's gonna be wonderful. And the reality is that that accepting Jesus doesn't mean everything's going to be wonderful. It simply means Jesus is going to be with you in the midst of your heartache, in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your adversity. For you see, if you can see the entire elephant and you understand that it is more than just the sum of its parts, if you can see life from a perspective that sees that there is both this connection to Jesus Christ that begins when you ask him into your heart, when you ask him to forgive you of your sins, and thou, through his spirit at work in your life, you can be a part of his kingdom that is at work now. And it's not just something that's coming someday. Accepting Christ is not just a way to, to avoid hell by, by accepting the forgiveness and saying, okay, I got that taken care of. Now I can live my life. No, no. Accepting Christ is a way of saying, I'm going to live in relationship, a relationship with Jesus Christ that is both present and future and forever. And so Paul says, listen, even though I'm in jail, even though I'm being persecuted, even though I'm, I'm here under false pretenses, I want you to know that God is still real and I will still rejoice because here's what I've learned. I've learned that the life of Jesus, it brings a new perspective and a Jesus perspective of life gives courage in the face of the adversity. A Jesus perspective of life 
is one that doesn't look for life to just be easy and without difficulty. But it is one that understands that in the difficult days, in the hard times, I can trust in Jesus to be with me. So that's why he writes these words, I will rejoice for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with all full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That phrase is, is huge for those of us who are followers of Jesus, for those of us who are seeking a, a perspective of truth and wholeness. Because it's a statement that says, if I live this life, for me to live this life means I live my life to glorify Jesus Christ. I live my life in relationship with him. I live my life in such a way that when others see me, they see him. And I leave behind the hypocrisy. And I leave behind the duplicity. And I leave behind my own agenda. But instead, I'm living in a life that honors Jesus Christ in all that I do. And it also means that I can have courage. I can have courage in the face of all of the adversity because no matter what happens to me, nothing can separate me from the love of God expressed in Christ Jesus. And for Paul to write these words, for Paul who had been raised a Pharisee among Pharisees, Paul who was the man who was the epitome of a perfectionist, the man who had done everything that he could do to earn God's favor, had, had followed all the rules and all the regulations until he met Jesus. And when he met Jesus face to face, suddenly his entire world was turned topsy-turvy because now suddenly he's understanding that there is this God who sent his son and his son died and his son was resurrected and he did it for Paul. And not just Paul, but for everybody. And so Paul the Pharisee, Paul the perfectionist, Paul the religious righteous person now suddenly becomes Paul the blind man who regains his sight because of the touch of Ananias, the servant of God, who came to his house and said, Paul, I, I just need you to know I'm a little bit afraid of you. <laughs> I know why you came to Damascus. I know you came to arrest followers of Jesus, and I'm a follower of Jesus, but, but Jesus spoke to me, Paul, and he said, I'm to come here, and I'm to place my hands on you, and I'm to pray for you and you will receive your sight. And the sight that he received that day was not just his physical sight, it was also his spiritual sight. It was his ability now to understand that he was called to live for Christ and that if he passed away in the process, he would, he would be with Christ both now and forever. And when you read the story and when you hear his write, him writing these words, there's a tendency to, to elevate Paul and say, hey, this is the right kind of guy. I want to be that kind of guy. But can I tell you something? It's not about elevating Paul. It's about understanding Christ. Because see, last week we talked about the fact that, that on the night before he died, Jesus gathered his disciples. We talk about this every time we come to the Lord's table, that, that he tried to tell them multiple times what was going to happen to them. And that multiple times the disciples said, yeah, I got that. Yeah, I got that. They didn't get that. <laughs> 
And what happens is that on that same night where Jesus does these amazing things like washing the disciples' feet and praying this prayer over them and, and sharing the Lord's table with them and does all this amazing stuff, on that same night, Jesus prayed the most honest prayer any human being has ever prayed. And remember, Jesus was the Son of God, but he was also 100% human so that he was tempted in every way just like you have been. That he was wounded in every way just like you've been wounded. That he knew all the oppression you have known. That he knew all the heartache you have known. And while it may have been manifest in a different reality, at its core it was the same pain that you face. And it was Jesus who on that same night, after doing all these marvelous things that we talk about, took his disciples. He went over to a garden, to a, a place they would often go to pray. And he said, I need you to pray with me. So you guys pray here, and I'm going, I'm going over just a little ways where I can be alone with God. And, and he took Peter and James and John, and, and they came away from the, from the other eight disciples because Judas was already with the Roman authorities and the Jewish authorities plotting Jesus' death. And as he came across and he went out to pray, you suddenly, John tells us that he heard Jesus praying words like this. Father, is there any other way for this to happen? Is there, is there any other way other than me being beaten and crucified and killed and and then resurrected on the third day. Is there, any, is there any other way to do what you want to do in my life and with my life and for this world other than the way that you've told me because this doesn't look like something I really want to do right now. Is there any way, Father, that this cup could pass from me? It was C. Gardner Taylor, the late pastor of Concord Baptist Church in New York City, who in his Lyman Beecher lecture series at Yale almost 45 years ago, wrote one of the most dynamic sermons that I've ever read about what was in that cup that Jesus actually saw. When Jesus looked in that cup and said, Father, could that cup, could that cup pass for me? Could I get another way through this? Is there any other way besides through this pain and through this adversity? Dr. Taylor would say, when he saw the dregs in the cup, you know that that stuff that's left in a cup of coffee after you're through with it and it's all just kind of in there a little bit? Or the tea leaves that are in, in the cup when you, when you have that in there? Or, or maybe, I don't know, that little bit of spittle that goes back, back in the cup. Some of you just got repulsed by me saying spittle, but it's okay, right? But whatever's in that cup, what, what, what Jesus saw in that cup was all the stuff you've been through. And all the stuff all the people in the world have been through. And all the heartache and the pain and the suffering and the abuse. And the things that turn your stomach when you hear about them. And the things that give you sleepless nights. And the, and the way your, your, your world begins to be based in fear because of the things that are going on around. That's what Jesus saw in the cup. And it's no wonder Jesus said, hey, listen, Father, is there any other way? Is there any other way that I could that I could accomplish what you sent me here to do. In fact, three different times, John tells us, Jesus said, 
Is there any way? And finally, on the third time, he said, okay, Father, not your will, not my will, but yours. Let me do your will. I'll go through this. It's not what I want to do right now. See, the humanness of Jesus is something we often overlook, but it's the humanness of Jesus that lets him have the ability to fix and heal and come alongside the hurt and the pain that you've had. And that's why Paul is writing. He's saying, listen, for me, to, 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 to live is Christ. To die is gain. I understand that, I, I, but, but listen, I need you guys to keep praying for me. It's been through your prayers. It's been through the work of the Spirit of Jesus that I've been able to have the courage that I've been able to have in the face of the adversity. You see, my friends, you are not called on to be a person who never has fear. You are called on to be a person that through your fear finds faith in Jesus Christ. The world is never gonna be a place where there's, where there's no anxiety. It's never gonna be a place where you can say, oh, the world looks like just like this. It's all a trunk. It's all a snake or it's all a wall or it's all a tree. No, no, no. It's bigger than anything you will experience, but the one who has experienced it all is the one who knows you better than anybody knows you. And it's through his courage, his spirit at work in you that you're, you can find healing, you can find joy, you can find peace. Not the absence of heartache, but the presence of Jesus in the midst of your pain. Because you see, a follower of Jesus has a Jesus perspective and Jesus gives courage in the face of adversity. But he also, he also gives clarity about your purpose, your purpose for being. I, uh, I remember years ago hearing a, a professor from Eastern University in New York named Tony Campolo talk about what it meant to spend your life in ministry among college students. And he said, there was something that always happened every spring at Eastern. Every spring without fail, sometime in late February, March, maybe, maybe as late as early April, there would be a student knock on his door. And the student would say, uh, Doc, do you have a minute? Yeah, come on in, sit down. Doc, listen, I, I just want to come by. I've really enjoyed your class. I really like the reading. I'm learning a lot. But, but Doc, I just, I just want to say to you that, you know what, I really... I don't know what I want to do with my life. I, I, I don't know what my purpose is. I don't know what kind of job I want to have. And, and, you know, I'm wasting my parents' money or I'm taking out all these loans. And, and, and so, you know, Doc, what I'm going to do is I'm going to drop out and go find myself. To which Dr. Campolo said, well, what do you mean go find yourself? Well, you know, I've got some friends and they've got a place out in Colorado. He said, it's always Colorado. I never understood why East Coast kids always want to go to Colorado. But we're going to go to Colorado, we're going to live in the mountains, and, and, and I'm, just going to, I'm just going to get out, and, and they've got this little retreat thing, and, and I'm, going to, I'm going to go there for a year, and I'm going to, like, find myself. And he said, every year this happened. He said, finally, one year, he said, he said I just, I've had enough. So, sure enough, student knocks on the door, Doc, I'm going out, I'm going to Colorado, I'm going to find myself. And he said, I, I just couldn't resist. I looked, and I said, what do you mean find yourself? 
Well, you know, I'm gonna peel back the layers of my life and, and all the things that other people have put on me and all the, all the presuppositions and all the expectations and, and I'm gonna peel all of that way till I know exactly who I am. You know, like, a, like an apple, you know, you, you take the peel off of it and then you get the, the meat of it and then you get down to the core and in the core there are these seeds and the seed is like the really the core of who they are. I wanna go find my core. I wanna go find my seeds. I wanna go find who I really am. What is my purpose for being here? And Campolo said, I, I, I couldn't resist. I looked at him and said, really? So what if you're an onion? And the student went, Huh? What do you mean onion? He said, have you ever peeled an onion? Maybe you haven't peeled an onion. Maybe you need to buy one today. If you're gonna buy one, buy a Vidalia onion. They're sweet, okay? And you peel back layer by layer by layer by layer by layer by layer, and there is no core. What if that's who you are? What if at, at the core of you, there's nothing? Because if you're not acknowledging who Jesus is, Jesus is the one who made you. It's not all these expectations. It's not all these presuppositions. It's not the things that people put on you. No, who you are is you are a child of God. Who you are is you were made in his image. Who you are is you were made for a relationship with him. You were made to live a life where to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's to be in the presence you were made to live a life with a perspective that even in the midst of the adversity, you can have courage because your purpose is to glorify God. As Campolo told the story, he said the student was not happy with him and left his office quite frustrated that day. So imagine Dr. Campolo's surprise when the next semester in the fall, he looked up the first week of class and there sitting on the second row was that student. And he said to him after class, so I thought you were going to Colorado. He said, I did. And it took me three weeks to realize I'm an onion. And I thought I might need to come somewhere and find the core so I could connect with Jesus Christ. My friends, I don't know who you are in terms of the presuppositions and the expectations and all the things people put on you. What I do know is who you are in the eyes of Jesus. In the eyes of Jesus, you are his daughter, you are his son. You were made in his image. He breathed life into you before you were ever even born from your mother's womb, no matter how you were born from your mother's womb, no matter if your mother kept you or your mother allowed you to be given to someone else and that pain is still deep in you. No matter who you are, no matter what you have done, you are a child of God. You are loved. At the core of your being, there is this person, this spirit, this Jesus who loves you, which is why your purpose is the same as the Apostle Paul's. If I'm to live in the flesh, what Paul says to the Philippians, his friends, is then that, that means fruitful labor for me. Well, what does he mean fruitful labor? It means I get to keep telling people about Jesus. I, keep the, I get to keep being grace and mercy and love like Jesus was grace and mercy and love. 
And yet, which shall I choose? I, I, I can't tell. He's really, he's really wrestling with this. He's being pretty, pretty authentic in, in his transparency. He's saying, listen, I'm hard-pressed between these two things because my desire is to depart and be with Jesus. I, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and your joy in the faith. That's why I'm here. I'm here as a brother in Christ to share with you, my brothers and sisters, that there is a purpose for your being. There is a core to who you are. That core is Jesus Christ, and he loves you with all of your heart, with all of his heart, and he loves every bit of you. And so I'm gonna stay, Paul says, so that in me you can have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because I'm getting a chance to come to you again. You see, when the perspective of a Jesus follower gives courage in the face of adversity, when the perspective of a Jesus follower understands who you are and why you were made and what it is that God wants to do in your life, that he wants you to be love and grace and mercy to people around you, then now suddenly your world begins to change. Your perspective is larger. Your perspective begins to embrace more. And what happens is that God begins to do a work in you so that even though you face tough times, even though you're at your Gethsemane where you're praying and asking God, is there anything else besides this? You know that you're in the place where Jesus was. And if you're in the place where Jesus was, you're in a good place because Jesus will never leave you or forsake you. And he will sustain you even in the times of your suffering. I mean, look at the way Paul says it. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that is from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Christ, but you would also suffer for his sake, engaged in that same conflict of good and evil, that you saw that I had and now here that I still have. See, what Paul wants them to know is if you live a life worthy of Christ, you're gonna face tough times, but when you do, you will have Jesus and you will have Jesus' people with you. Over the years that I've spent in ministry, I've had many phone calls from people in places of pain people who were suicidal, people who had experienced trauma, people who had been abused and abandoned. I, 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 I've had the call from family members who have a loved one who is dying. For some of them, the death is going to be a glorious transition because the person has lived this life of faith among them. And for others, it's like, it, it's like, the most horrific fear that they would ever have. And I, I will have to tell you that what I've learned from all of those phone calls 
was demonstrated very clearly for me in a phone call I got from a mother of a, an 11-year-old girl. Her daughter had had leukemia, childhood leukemia, diagnosed at the age of eight, went through treatment, people prayed for her, and she responded beautifully to the treatment. In fact, so much so that she went into remission, and we all celebrated her remission. But if you know anything about childhood leukemia, you know that the remission needs to last 36 months for them to declare that it is permanent. And there are people, people I know whose children have been through that, some you know from this congregation who have been through childhood leukemia and they have found remission and they have found health and we celebrate and praise God for that. But for this little girl, she was 32 months toward the 36-month goal when the leukemia returned. And it was, it was devastating. Immediately, the family put her back into treatment, only this time her body didn't respond to the treatment. And the phone call I remember getting that was like so many others that I've received said these words. Hey, Pastor Kerry, the doctors have said there's nothing else that they can do. I know I believe in miracles, and God could do one right now and raise my daughter up from this hospital bed. But I also know that the doctors have told me that since there's nothing else they can do, we, we have to either have a miracle or nothing. And, and, and so they're going to turn the machines off. It's our family's decision that she's suffered enough, and it's time for us to turn the machines off. We know that's what we feel like is the right thing to do. We know her faith is in Jesus. We know she'll be present with Jesus. But pastor, here's the part of the phone call. I just can't do this by myself. My husband and I were just talking. Is there any way you could come and be with us? I know we're at a regional hospital. I know we're a couple of hours, but we've talked to the doctors. They said they'll, they'll keep the machines running until you arrive. And so I... <laughs> I said, yeah, I'll be there. Is it all right if I bring these two people with me who I knew were her prayer partners, who I knew were her good friends? And she was like, please do. And my friends, here's what I want you to know. This God who has a wider perspective, this God that you can trust, this God who will always give you a clarity about your purpose if you trust him, he will sustain you in the suffering. Because I stood with that family and I've stood with many other families since. And I watched that young 11-year-old girl take her very last breath. And I don't tell you that story because of the pain involved in it. I tell you that story because of the healing involved in it. Not her physical healing, but her permanent healing. And I tell you the story because at her at her funeral service, attended by classmates and community people, and doctors and nurses who had walked with that family. They handed out to everyone there little paper mache butterflies because Stephanie, the little girl, her, her understanding about what was going on in her body, that she had communicated to everyone who would listen is that I am like a butterfly 
Right now, I'm just a caterpillar, and I'm making a cocoon. And this body is my cocoon, but when I come out of my cocoon, I'm going to fly like a butterfly. And I watched little children, elementary age kids, come by a casket of a friend and both give and pick up butterflies. And I tell you that because in the last year or so, as I've been driving through the city of Anderson, I began to notice people who had butterflies. Not real butterflies, but yard sign butterflies. I mean, butterflies that are four or five, well, three or four feet, I'm a preacher, five or six feet, whatever, you know, big butterflies. Actually, they're different sizes. And they're on a pole, and they're in their yard. And I began to wonder, who's selling the butterflies? I mean, you know, there are guys that sit on a scatter field, and they sell you all kinds of stuff they've made. And I'm like, who, who's, who's selling the butterflies? Where do you get the butterfly? Couldn't find anybody. I wanted to buy a butterfly. I wanted to remember Stephanie. And then I was in a meeting with some other pastors here in town. And Pastor Christine Marshall from Bethel Community Church on the west side of town began to tell the stories of the butterflies. And I have Christine's permission to tell you that, that that congregation of people chose to use butterflies that they could give to people in Madison County who were their neighbors, who were their friends, who were walking through the valley of the shadow of death, who were walking through cancer, who were walking through heartache, who had had a loved one pass away. And that the church people would, would just make these butterflies and then give them to their neighbors. And what Christine was sharing at the dedication of a Habitat house that we partnered with here at Eastside and with other churches, with Habitat for Humanity, as she presented a butterfly to the single mom for her yard, Christine was like, these, these are our reminders that even though we walk through tough times, God is always with us. And so I tell you about Stephanie so I can tell you about the butterflies so I can tell you that when you're driving through Madison County, those of you who live here, and you see the over 1,000 butterflies in over 1,000 yards in this community, you will know that that is a testimony to the fact that the Jesus of the Bible never leaves us never forsakes us and that he is indeed someone that you can trust with everything you've got and if you're facing adversity and hard times he'll give you courage and if you are wondering what your purpose is don't worry you're not really an onion at your core is the image of God breathed into you before you were ever born and he knows you and when the enemy of your soul tries to tell you, you know what, you don't need to be here. You can take your life and nobody will notice or, or you can do this and nobody will care. Please hear, please hear. There are people who care. And your heavenly father loves you because you're his daughter and you're his son. He will sustain you through whatever you're going through.
So whether you're here with us on campus today, whether you're joining us online or later this week on demand, however it is that you're hearing this story of Paul and the church in Philippi, know that God wants to build a life in you with a Jesus perspective and you can trust him. If you're on campus with us, would you stand? There is a song that is referred to, it's entitled, A Song of Ascent. The Song of Ascents were songs that were written by the people of Israel as they came up the mountain to the temple in Jerusalem. They would sing these songs to remind themselves of who God was and what God had done in their life and where God was leading them to go. So this morning, I'm going to invite you to sing along with the worship team and the band, a song of ascent about who Jesus wants to be in your life. And I'm going to invite you to let him be that Lord and that Savior for you.
pray with me? Abba, Papa, Heavenly Father, thank you that you never leave us, that you never forsake us. Thank you that you sent Jesus Christ with a purpose and a mission and a grace and a love and a mercy that reach all the way to exactly who we are and where we are, it's no matter what life throws at us, we can have courage because of your presence with us. We can know that you have a purpose and a plan for us. And today, Lord, for my friends who are here on campus or gathered with us online, who are hurting, who are broken, who are walking through the valley of the shadow of death, remind them that they don't need to fear any evil because your rod and your staff are there to comfort them. Your, your word and your presence, Holy Spirit, you are there with them. And that we as their brothers and sisters in Christ are there to pray, to love, to laugh, to cry, to walk with them, even through the hard times of life. For it's in the strong name of Jesus Christ that we pray.